In today's episode, we are going over a physical therapy guide to plyometrics, return to run, speed, and agility training. Let's get rolling. So why are we talking about this? Well, first and foremost, especially for post-op patients, I think physical therapists do a very good job in the early stages of rehabilitation. And we had a lot of education on how to deal with common orthopedic surgeries. So we do a good job. On the flip side of things, we don't get a lot of education on the end stages of rehabilitation, particularly return to sport. So essentially, if you have a post-op patient and you get a protocol from the surgeon, usually you have some pretty good guidance from that surgeon up until about three to four months, and then you get a lot less guidance. And it's up to the physical therapist to learn how to bridge that gap and get back to high level of a performance for that individual. And this goes for an athlete that's trying to get back to a field sport, but it also goes for the average Joe that maybe wants to get back to some sort of jogging program, or they just want to get back to being able to play pickup sports, like let's say tennis or basketball or soccer or something along those lines, right? And generally speaking, a lot of the advancement of impact activities is not taught in most physical therapy curriculums, right? So we have a lot of questions end up being, when is it even appropriate to start plyometric training? How and when do we transition to some of the impact activity? Also, when we are allowed to start, what do we start with? And how do we progress over the course of time? What's kind of step one, step two, step three, step four, step five? If we are going too fast, how do we know, right? And lastly, I think a big problem is that most information that we have out there is expert opinion. We don't have a lot of clear-cut uh, medical research that shows us when we're allowed to start stage one, stage two, stage three, so on and so forth. So in today's episode, we're going to go over when is it okay to start with return to run activities, plyometric activities, right? We're going to talk about progressions. We're going to talk about very easy progressions and how to progress all the way to more advanced return to sport type activities. We'll also talk about how I like to specifically progress each part of impact. So basically we're going to go with a return to run program first, and this is my foundation for all plyometric based activities. We're going to talk about how to return back to acceleration and sprinting. We're going to talk about how to progress through plyometric and jump training. We'll chat about change of direction and agility work. And lastly, we'll talk about conditioning. So once we've built all of these elements together, right? How do we get someone more conditioned so they can return back to sport or their activities over the course of time? Welcome to the Fitness Pain-Free Show. This is where we help coaches and physical therapists like you get your patients out of pain and back to training. My name is Dan Pope. I'm a physical therapist, coach, personal trainer, and meathead. I have my dream job as a physical therapist, coach, business owner, and educator. I've been doing this for several decades now. I want to help you reach your goals, and that's the whole reason why I run fitnesspainfree.com. This is part three on our series on plyometrics and return to running. If you missed part one or part two, I'll leave a link in the show notes. Check those out before you start watching this one. Next, let's go over some general principles to return to plyometrics. Now, I, I think this is going to end up being a little complicated because we're talking about return to run programs, return to speed and agility, plyometrics, conditioning. So what I want to do is go through each individual aspect. At the very end, I promise I'll put it all together because I know it's going to be confusing at this point, but it'll make a little bit more sense later. So in terms of plyometrics, I'm basically talking about double leg and single legged jumping. Okay. That's what I mean when I'm referring to plyometrics, right? So it's obvious, but number one, biggest principle is you're going to go from easy exercises to harder exercises. Okay. And that's probably the most important principle that we'll talk about. 
Second one is going to be double leg exercises first, followed by single legged exercises. Now, if I have an injury to one knee and I'm doing a double leg, uh, excuse me, jump, that should be a little less stress because both legs are cooperating, right? They're both working together. As soon as I move to one leg, now that single leg has to do all the work. So it's going to be much more challenging. So introduce double leg first. And then over the course of time, we progress to single leg. You can also make the argument that single legged exercises are much more important because we're trying to get that surgical leg or the injured side back up to snuff compared to the contralateral leg. So if we do double legged exercise all the time, we're probably super free to compensate. We'll never rebuild back that strength and power on the surgical side or the injured leg, right? Next principle is going to be technique before power. So I want to make sure my jumping and landing looks really good. Oftentimes what you'll find, especially like a fresh post-op ACL, the first time you're jumping on one leg, when they jump and land, oftentimes they keep the knee really stiff. They don't want to bend through that leg. In reality, you want to be able to absorb force and get some knee flexion when we land. So when we first start jumping, if we try to jump for maximal power, your body is going to be super freaked out. It's not going to move through the joint that you want, and we're going to build bad moving patterns. So it's important that when we introduce some of our jumping, we kind of work on that technique, make sure we get the knee flexion if it's a post-op ACL, whatever it is. And over the course of time, we generally add power when technique looks good. The next point, and I've actually changed my thought process on this a little bit over the course of time, uh, but we're going to go from a longer ground contact time to a shorter ground contact time. Now, hear me out, right? Let's say you're jumping to a box and it's a set height. Let's say it's 42 inches, right? So if I load up and jump onto that box, right? Generally speaking, that's going to be a little less stress than if I dropped off of a box, hit the ground and jumped up immediately as soon as I hit the ground onto that same level box. Now we're jumping to the same height box, but the ground contact time is going to be very different from jump to jump. So if you have a very short ground contact time, you have to produce force very, very quickly. All right. Not only have to produce force, we have to be able to absorb and then produce force very quickly. So largely, I focus first on longer ground contact times. So think about a box jump over, let's say, like a rebounding pogo, okay? And over the course of time, we progress to more short ground contact times. Now, speaking a little bit with some of the great strength coaches at Champion PT and Performance, uh, Dewesh being the one, um, we talked a little bit about athletic development from a strength conditioning perspective. And what they like to do when they have an athlete that's not injured is they work on jumps that have a short ground contact time and jumps that have a long ground contact time simultaneously, right? So I've actually changed what I do from a rehab perspective to kind of match this philosophy. So in the past, I would do a lot of long ground reaction time jumps. And once someone tolerates that really well, then we work our way towards a short ground contact time jump. Now I tend to introduce long ground contact time first, but very quickly progress to shorter ground contact times and just use easier variations. So essentially I kind of introduce a long ground contact time and short ground contact time around the same time, longer being first and progress the two simultaneously and just using harder and harder jumping variations, starting with easy and going to more advanced. Um, I will explain a lot of these exercises in this presentation, but I'm going to make some follow-up videos, mostly short clips on Instagram, as well as um, TikTok um, and YouTube shorts to show you the exact movements that I'm talking about. So stick around for those in the future. Make sure you like and subscribe so you get those videos in the future. 
So what's really interesting to me is that if you break down the different parts of speed and acceleration, so if I'm accelerating or I'm changing direction, doing more of an agility drill, uh, then largely I'm going to have a longer ground contact time. My foot is on the ground for a longer period of time. If you contrast this to top end sprinting, there's a very short ground contact time. So think about someone who's sprinting as fast as they can. Their foot's not in contact with the ground for very long. It's a very short ground contact time. So if I'm trying to specifically improve top end sprinting speed, I might want to think about incorporating more short ground contact times, right? So this might be more important for, let's say, a track athlete, right? But if I'm working with a sport that has a ton of change of direction, agility, acceleration, so I'm thinking more about something like, let's say, tennis or basketball, or it's a small court, people are constantly changing direction, pushing off, then I want to try to focus a little bit more on those long ground contact time exercises, all right? So you kind of dose that based on the individual that's in front of you. At least that's one of the principles to think about when you're designing these programs, right? And the last one is going to be moving from sagittal plane jumps to frontal and transverse plane jumps. Okay. So a lot of injuries, one of the big ones that comes to mind is ACL tears. Uh, oftentimes you're getting dynamic valgus under load and overload into dynamic valgus, which can tear the ACL as well as the MCL and the meniscus, right? So this could be because the body's not able to control dynamic valgus well. If I do a jump, so think about a single legged jump and I turn in the air, when I land, I have to be able to control dynamic valgus. So I think these are super useful exercises for certain pathologies. It's just that I wouldn't start folks off with those. You usually start with jumps in the sagittal plane, up and down, forward and backwards. And once people are tolerating that very well and they built the ability to do it, we can move to adding a turn, adding a twist, right? So now we're jumping more in the frontal plane, transverse plane. We're controlling some of those rotational forces, forces side to side. I think that's super beneficial for athletes, but it's not something I start with. I advance to it over the course of time. So guys, if you like what you're learning about so far, then I want you to go and check out the fitness pain-free mini course. So I made a mini course. It's absolutely free. That's the next logical step. If you want to learn more from me. So in the course, we go over five lessons. That first lesson is how traditional schooling has failed us, right? So schooling is phenomenal from a physical therapy perspective, but doesn't really teach you how to work with high-level athletes in the fitness world, right? Doesn't always teach you how to do the lifts appropriately. Doesn't teach you about progressions and regressions of common lifts within the gym. Doesn't teach you how to program normally, how to write rehab programs or how to write injury prevention programs for these folks. Next thing we go over, Seven reasons why people get hurt in the gym, four simple steps to getting your clients out of pain, how to build the career of your dreams and earn the respect of your community. It's all well and good if you know exactly how to work with folks within the gym, but if you can't get these folks through the door on a regular basis, then you're simply not going to be living the dream that you want to because you can't get the patients through the door that you want to work with. Okay. So I'll show you how to do that. And lastly, we'll talk a little bit about the fitness pain-free certification, right? So I'll leave a link in the show notes. I definitely recommend checking this out. Once you sign up for the fitness pain-free mini course, you will be automatically placed in the wait list for the fitness pain-free certification. Now, the fitness pain-free certification is the course, the certification that I wish I had as a new grad that fills in all the gaps in knowledge that you don't get in physical therapy school. So A, you'll gain complete confidence working with injuries in the strength and fitness world. You'll learn optimal technique for both health and performance from myself and some of the best coaches in the world. You'll master programming for rehabilitation and injury prevention. 
have fun while earning a whole bunch of physical therapy and physical therapy assistance credits. You have 31.5 of those. You'll also gain NSCA credits as well as CrossFit credits if you need those. This is the equivalent of a university education in working with injuries in the weight room. I really believe that. I've been adding to this thing over the past five or six years. It's massive, a ton of phenomenal information. And lastly, the biggest goal is just to fill your day with the patients you love working with and building the respect and admiration of the communities you love working with. So I'll leave a link in the show notes. Sign up for the fitness pain-free mini course. The certification is open four times per year for one week to enroll into. If you're on the wait list by signing up for the fitness pain-free mini course, I'll alert you when that next enrollment period is open and you can get started. Let's get back to the show now. All right. What does the start of these plyometric programs look like, right? So essentially, let's say I have that post-op ACL reconstruction and month three, I'm starting a little bit of plyometrics. What are the movements you actually start with? Well, I like to start with an assisted pogo jump. So essentially, you just take a band, put it over the top of the rig, something that's stable. You pull some slack out of the band, get a nice stretch in that band, and you just hop up and down lightly. A very low amount of force is going through the body when you do this exercise. It's usually pretty easy for the athlete. They're not scared of doing it. Do keep in mind, if it's three months after the surgery, four months after the surgery, and they had an injury maybe a month or two prior to surgery, they haven't left the earth for let's say four to six months, right? So we have to start with really easy exercises to build back the patient's confidence, but also to make sure those forces are starting very low and working up over the course of time. My favorite introductory exercise is going to be assisted pogo jump. Okay. Start that around week 12 with two legs, right? Week 13, we take away the band and I just do unassisted pogo jumps. Still very low level of stress, but it's going to be a little bit more than having the band. Once we get to week 14, so month three and a half, that's when we start a return to run program. And we already went over that the, what the return to run program looks like. And simultaneously, I'll start my athletes doing double-legged jumps. Okay. I'm getting ahead of myself, but usually two weeks after we introduce double-leg jumps, I'm doing single-legged jumps and starting at a very low level. All right. So I'm breaking up these plyometric exercises into double-legged jumps, single-legged jumps, I'm also breaking it further down into long contact times and short contact times like we spoke about previously. And first, we're going to go over long contact times. And these are the exercises that are easiest. These are the ones that I start with. And then we'll go over progressively harder exercises over the course of time. So the first one, and usually the first exercise I introduce from a double leg jump perspective with my athletes, is going to be a box jump. And the reason why is because when you jump to a height, let's say you jump up onto a 12 inch box, right? You have to produce enough force to get up onto 12 inches. But normally when you jump, you have to land right back to the earth. So you have to fall another 12 inches and then you have to be able to catch yourself from that height. When you jump to a box, you don't have the same amount of deceleration built up that you would if you just jumped to the earth, right? So the deceleratory opponent is taken down a little bit in a box jump compared to a, just a jump straight up and then straight back down to the ground again, right? And that's where I tend to start. I also like to start in front of a mirror so the athlete can make sure they're not having any sort of compensation left to right. Keep in mind, these folks are generally a little bit scared of jumping. So seeing um, themselves in the mirror and seeing if they're doing anything wonky is a great tool to give them a little bit of biofeedback to make sure they jump without compensation, Okay. I also like to incorporate a box landing as well. So we're actually splitting apart the jump and the landing a little bit just to make it a little bit easier for that athlete. So not bombarded with two challenging things to deal with all at once. And all we do is we step off the edge of a low box and then land with good landing mechanics, right? And that's simply it. 
once an athlete is doing pretty well with a box jump and a box landing, then I just do a regular jump, right? And that could be in space, but I also like to mess around with jumping over hurdles. Usually I start with the cues to absorb, to sound soft when you're landing, nice soft landing. And you can also reset in between each jump. So I don't make the jumps continuous yet. If you're going to be jumping over hurdles, we jump over hurdle, we land well, we reset, we jump over another hurdle, we land well, we reset, and we continue. Over the course of time, once an athlete is doing that really well, we make the jumps continuous. So let's say I have a bunch of hurdles lined up, jump over the hurdle, I land, absorb that force, and immediately jump over the next hurdle. And I go jump, 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 jump. But you still get that kind of absorb squat down, and that keeps it a longer contact time right? We'll talk about the short contact times, but they're very similar. It's just that we're trying to be bouncier and more explosive between jumps. But for this, we're not. We're trying to jump and land with good mechanics. Once an athlete has shown they can jump really well over hurdles and do these continuous jumps, right? I may actually add a little bit of a load. So think about adding two dumbbells, let's say 10 to 12 pounds, one each hand, have an athlete jump up and down continuously. As you can see, it's just a little bit more challenging than jumping with your body weight. And the last thing I tend to introduce is going to be some sort of turn or rotation in midair, right? And like I said previously, I think these jump variations have a, a ton of fruit. Uh, there's a, it's a wonderful variation to expose your athletes to, but I wouldn't do it from the beginning, okay? It's more of an advanced, uh, more of an end-stage rehab jump exercise, not to be included at the very beginning. What this might look like is you set up a hurdle facing the hurdle, you jump over the hurdle, but you do a 180 degree turn in the air and land facing the hurdle again, right? So you can see we add a rotation in the air. If you're getting uh, better and better, you want to increase the challenge. You can practice jumping and doing a 360 degree turn. Okay. And when you land, you have to control all of that rotation that occurred in the air, right? So we make sure that we land with good mechanics. We're not landing in a ton of dynamic valgus. Teach athletes how to land appropriately so that when they're doing it, basically on a court with whatever sport they're performing, they're not landing in a compromised position, or if they are landing in a more compromised position, they know how to control those forces well, and hopefully they're a little less likely to get hurt when they do it. All right, so we got over the long contact time double leg jumps. What do the short contact time jumps look like? And again, a short contact time jump, it's just a really bouncy, poppy jump. Generally, you're producing force much more quickly through the floor, right? So it's a bit different, right? It's a little bit more, uh, has a bit more carryover maybe to top end sprinting, whereas those long contact times, again, are more for acceleration or change of direction. So the first movement that I introduced, and you guys have already seen that, but it's a pogo jump, right? If you think about a pogo jump, it's really quick, it's snappy, hit the ground, you bounce up really quickly, right? And we start assisted, we progress to body weight, and then we just increase the, uh, the magnitude a little bit, the amplitude. So we jump a little higher. So it's kind of a low to a medium height pogo jump. If that's going really well, we advance to jumping over hurdles or jumping through a ladder, right? If you think about it, a ladder is a little bit easier to jump through. Think about a speed ladder as opposed to a hurdle. And we can always make those hurdles higher over the course of time. So it's pretty easy to start with kind of a low level exercise and progress to a little harder exercise over the course of time. Also keep in mind that we can start in the sagittal plane. And as your athlete's getting better, we can add a little rotation or we can start working in the frontal plane. Think about uh, hopping through a ladder with two legs going to the side, right? Pretty easy way to advance double-legged hopping going forward or going backwards, okay? And I already kind of alluded to this, but you can increase the intensity just by adding, let's say, a hurdle as opposed to a ladder, or you can tell your athletes to jump a little bit higher. So low effort, medium effort, or high effort. It's pretty easy to dose this, okay? 
once your athlete is doing well with these movements, another variation I like a lot, it's very challenging, is going to be a tuck jump. So essentially, think about jumping up in the air, bring your knees to your chest, and basically coming down and jumping immediately as soon as you land, bring your knees to your chest again. Uh, this is just very challenging because you basically have to recycle your legs in midair before jumping again. So you have to have a really fast ground contact time, which is good. It's good for promoting uh, athleticism, right? Getting folks back to, to training, but it's a hard exercise. And the last one, I think this is the most challenging plyometric exercise you can do, right? Uh, but it really depends on the height that you use, but it's a depth jump. So essentially you stand at a height and ideally this height would be a little higher than how high you can actually jump, right? Uh, the reason being is because if we jump from a height that's higher that you can actually jump, then when you land, that's going to be a little bit more force than a regular jump. And then you have to be able to reverse that and jump straight up into the, into the sky again. Right. Um, but largely it's going to be more stress through the body than any sort of other jump you're doing just, you know, from the floor and back up again. So uh, keep in mind, this is the hardest variation, but it's only the hardest variation. If you have a box, that's higher than what you normally jump to. So what does a program actually look like starting in around week 14 and moving forward to about month six, right? Whenever these principles, whenever a couple exercises, what might this actually look like on like a rehab protocol, right? This is generally what I do. It's just a sample. It's not perfect, but just kind of displays these movements starting from easy to harder. But let's say we're introducing double-legged jumping and we're starting that at week 14. And we're starting off with easy exercises. We're incorporating both long contact and short contact time jumps. We may do a box jump and a box landing as well as low pogo jumps, right? Let's say we do well. We have two weeks of that. Week 16 comes around. I'm doing jumps over hurdles and I'm focusing on absorbing and resetting. So I'm thinking more about technique, right? I'm not trying to be continuous with my jumps yet. And also doing medium pogo jumps. So just increasing the challenge of pogo jumps slightly. This is also the week where I start to introduce single-legged jumping exercise variations, and we'll go over that in just a minute, but just to, to let you know, give you an idea of how these things all mix together. Week 18, I might start introducing some jumps over hurdles, and this time I make it more continuous. So I'm not stopping in between jumps. I'm going to land, absorb, and continuously jump right back over to the next hurdle. Okay. It's not as continuous as like a short contact time pogo, um, but it's not as easy as resetting between every single hurdle, right? And from a short contact time perspective, maybe we're doing some pogos now through a ladder. So we're, we're advancing the challenge of those exercises. Let's say we're, we're pumping things up. We're spicing it up. We're now at week 20. What are we doing? We're incorporating some pogo jumps over hurdles, right? Maybe we start in the sagittal plane. Then we start getting a little bit fancy. We go more in the frontal plane. We maybe go in the transverse plane, add a little twist as we jump over top of those hurdles. Maybe we're doing some loaded jumps, okay? Week 22, we advance some more. Let's say now we're doing tuck jumps. We're also doing jumps with a 180 degree turn. Okay. And lastly, at week 24, and at this point, you're at six months. You can see how far out you are at this point. We might be doing reactive hops over hurdles, kind of pogo jumps over top of those hurdles, as well as depth jumps. So really spicing things up quite a bit. The jump variation is getting harder and harder at this point. And once you get beyond six months, you know, this is a little bit past um, the goal of the lesson today, but you just continue advancing things over the course of time. And that could be the challenge of the exercise. That could also be the amount of volume that you're incorporating for your athletes, right? So there's a lot that goes on past the six month mark. Hopefully you can see how we advance up to this point, right? Uh, also keep in mind that some folks are going to advance a little faster, some folks a little bit slower. This is going to depend on the individual, obviously the injury they had, the surgery they had, uh, but at least you can kind of see how I progressed through the double-legged jumps 
Uh, now that we uh, did the double legs, let's see how we incorporate single-legged jumping. All right, so how do we introduce single-legged jumping and how do we progress over the course of time? Uh, so keep in mind, I usually do a couple weeks worth of double-leg jumping, usually around two, before I progress to single-legged jumping. So the body is kind of used to jumping at this point. I think single-legged jumping is just very challenging for most folks after major surgery. So we make sure we build them up a little bit, right? And as I stated before, we probably want to make sure we're really rock-solid single-legged squat, single-legged deadlift, have had worked things like step-ups for several weeks. So we're, we're pretty much ready to jump at this point, okay? The first exercise I use, just like the double-leg jumping, is going to be some sort of single-legged box jump with an altitude landing. I'm really focusing on absorbing that force and landing really well. Uh, like I said, these folks haven't left the earth in months. Now we're asking them to jump with one leg at a time. It's very scary. So we start with easy variations, work way to harder variations. I love using a mirror or video for biofeedback to show athletes what they're doing, just to make sure they know what they're supposed to accomplish. I also am a big fan of starting the single-legged box jumps, jumping from your left leg to your right leg or vice versa, just because it's a little less scary for folks. Jumping from your injured left leg onto your injured left leg again is very, very challenging. So if you jump right to left, it's a, it's a little bit nicer. And once athletes kind of get that down, they can just jump from left to left or right to right, right? It's a little bit uh, easier after you've done a right to left. The other thing I like to do is adding a little bit of a single-legged squat in between jumps. So let's say someone's doing a box jump. They may do a single-legged squat followed by a box jump. Reason being is we're just practicing jumping and landing mechanics slowly before we do it quickly. The other cue I'll give folks, because oftentimes when they land, it doesn't look great, right? So we don't have to tell people to start all over again. What I tend to tell them is that it's okay if you land a little stiff. It's okay if you don't land well, but catch yourself, regain your balance, and then squat a little bit deeper, land with good mechanics, right? So they're actually kind of landing poorly and then adding a good-looking single-legged squat afterwards. And obviously the idea is when they land and jump in the future, they try to land with good mechanics, right? So if they land stiff, don't land well, that's okay. Reset, land better, okay? And that's usually my cueing. If someone's doing really well with their single-leg box jumps and single-leg box landings, we start jumping over things. And that could be hurdles, that could be a ladder, usually starting with a ladder gets a little bit easier and then just progressing the height a little bit over the course of time. Uh, I usually like to have athletes jump and stick and absorb <clears throat> before we move to more continuous jumps. But if an athlete is showing they're really good at jumping and sticking and going to continuous jumping, I think is appropriate for these folks. And like I said previously, we start adding hurdles and we increase the height of hurdles over the course of time. So as your athletes are doing really well with these continuous jumps, I like to try to work now on the horizontal as well as a transverse plane. Now, what do I mean by that? So a couple of really easy jumps you can do is just jumping with one leg, turning 45 degrees and trying to land and then jump back the other direction and doing the same. Okay. Uh, it's actually a phenomenal exercise for folks that let's say have an ACL reconstruction because we're controlling a lot of dynamic valgus forces as we land. So we're showing athletes how to be able to handle the forces that may have hurt them in the first place. Okay. Other exercise that fit into this bucket are going to be skater jumps or hide and jumps. And we can also make the hide ends a little bit more challenging by adding multiple directions. So you can go straight side to side. You can also jump on an angle. I also like to do a hide in with a quarter turn. So think about I'm jumping to the side, but I'm landing kind of facing forward. Um, kind of an interesting jump variation. And again, I'm going to try to put these exercises into some, some short forward content so you can take a look at them. It's not me trying to explain everything poorly. All right. So we did the long contact time for the single leg. How do we introduce and how do we advance short contact time single leg? So again, Single leg, short contact is going to have good carryover to sprinting, top end sprinting, okay? 
Whereas that long ground contact time is going to be a little bit more useful for acceleration or changing direction. And we want to start with easy variations and progress over the course of time. So the first one I like to use, super simple. We already talked about it, but assisted pogo jump. As folks are doing really well with single-legged assisted pogo jumps, we just progress naturally to a body weight pogo jump. Okay. Once you have the body weight pogo jump down, we can start to go into multiple planes. So we can jump side to side. We can jump on a diagonal. We can go more forward to backwards, get a little bit more fancy. As someone progresses over the course of time, we can start hopping through a ladder. So that's just going to be a little bit more force and a little bit more force to dissipate when we land every single jump. We can start jumping in multiple directions than a ladder. So think about jumping uh, laterally or jumping over a line, going forward. There's a lot of cool variations we can try. Your athletes are doing really well with that. We can start jumping over low hurdles, one leg at a time, kind of bouncy every time you hit the ground, trying to bounce over to the next uh, hurdle. And we can also do different skip variations. We can do reactive skip variations. There's a lot of fun stuff we can do from a single-legged jump perspective. Once athletes are showing a lot of control, jumping over hurdles, jumping through a ladder, I like to take things up a notch. And usually I do this via power skips. And you can do power skips both for height as well as distance. If someone's doing really well with power skips, we move on to different hide ins with a hop variation. So, so think about doing a hide in or a skater jump. And when you hit the ground, you bounce. And when you land again from that bounce, you jump in the opposite direction. So you're doing a hide in and each repetition, you add a little bounce on the end. So it just makes it a little bit snappier, a little bit poppy. We're working on those short contact times on the ground, right? And some of the hardest jump exercises you can do on one leg are bound variations. And you can do bound variations where you jump from left to right to left to right. Or you can do it left to left to left to left. I usually start with left to right to left to right variations and progress my way over the course of time to single-legged bounding, right? So you can do these straight ahead. We can also do them a little bit on a diagonal, right, to introduce some of those forces in the frontal and transverse planes. You can also focus on either height or distance. So think about a bound where you're trying to get as high as you can every single repetition versus a bound where you're trying to cover as much ground as possible, right? So some variations you give your athletes. And like I said previously, we usually start with bounds where you go from left to right to left to right. We progress to single-legged bounding, which is just left to left to left to left. And again, you can do different um, <clears throat> planes of motion. So we can go kind of left to right. We can hop over a line. We can try to go for height. We can kind of go for distance. A lot of variations you can try. All right. So we talked through the exercise I like to use from a single-legged jumping perspective. What does a program actually look like? What exercise do we start with and how do we advance over the course of time? Okay. So let's say I start my single legged jumping at week 16. Now keep in mind, based on everything we went over so far, we actually have about four weeks of impact activity under our belts. So we started with double legged pogos with assistance. We worked our way to double legged pogos with body weight. Excuse me, body weight. We progressed our way to a return to run program. We've done some double legged jumping, right, with two legs. And now we're really ready to start with the single legged jump exercises. Okay. And this would be at week 16. Let's use the example of like a post op ACL reconstruction. Maybe they're doing really well. Their strength is looking phenomenal. They're ready to jump a little bit earlier than the average person. They started all their impact around the three month mark. Now we're starting our single legged jumping around the week uh, 16 mark or month four, right? And usually, like I said, I start with a box jump, and a box landing, and this is usually in front of a mirror, and we're focused on technique, okay? So we jump, we land well, we make sure we're not jumping so high that our technique looks terrible or the athlete gets super scared. During the same time period, my athletes are working on assisted pogo jumps, but this time on one leg at a time, right? So working those short contact times, but doing it in a very safe and easy manner. At week 18, I start incorporating some jumps over hurdles. And we're focusing on sticking and absorbing, okay? So landing softly, 
good landing mechanics. I'm correcting them if I see them. Okay. Not focusing on power just yet. Just focusing on good jump and land mechanics. Right. We pump up our pogos and now we're doing single legged pogos without assistance. If things are going well, week 20, we progress. I may progress through some hops through a ladder. So think about a single legged hop through a ladder or a low hurdle. I'm also doing continuous jumps over hurdle or in place. So we're doing some short contact times and long contact times, both over hurdle. Now we're at week 22. This is where things really start getting spicy. We incorporate some power skips and or some reactive skips. We're making the challenge of short contact time plyos a little bit harder. I'm also introducing some hide-ins. Maybe I do a little bit of a hide-in with a stick, right? So we're increasing the challenge by going in the frontal plane, but we're still sticking, absorbing, focusing on technique. Now we get to week 24, we're at the six month mark. We spruce things up again. I may be doing some hide ins with a bit of a hop. So think about doing that hide in, hitting the ground, popping off the ground, and then jumping again, right? Side to side. Might also do some hide ins with a quarter turn. So now I'm doing a jump to the side and I'm turning um, 90 degrees in the air and landing in a different direction. So again, just increasing the challenge of the movement. Then at week 26, I may introduce some bounding, right? And I think bounding is probably, like I said, one of the hardest things you can do jump wise on one leg. So maybe I start off with some bounding straight ahead. And over the course of time, I progress to single legged bounding. Let's say I start bounding on diagonal, all those things, right? And maybe also I'm doing some single legged jumping. So think about jumping from my left leg back onto my left leg, but adding a turn in the air. Maybe that's 90 degrees. If your athlete's doing extremely well, maybe 180, right? So again, we're just increasing the challenge over the course of time. And really, I, I talked about this already in the double leg jump section, but as you progress, because, you know, if someone's at six months, it doesn't mean they're, they're completely ready for return to sport, right? They probably have a few more months if they're, say, an ACL reconstruction patient, right? Maybe some athletes are more ready at this point, but it really depends on the individual, the injury, the surgery, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea here is just to advance over the course of time. Now, just because I said week 26, you're supposed to bound doesn't mean your athlete's going to be there yet. Maybe it takes another month or two to get to this point, right? Or maybe they get to this point and they need more challenging exercises. So you have to use your brain and figure those out. Uh, the other thing you can do is just increase the, the difficulty in terms of perceived intensity. So just more cues to be more powerful, jump, be more explosive, right? Uh, we can also increase things like volumes. Maybe they start jumping more frequently, right? We can just alter a bunch of different things over the course of time. If you guys enjoyed this lesson and want to learn some more, I have another video for you. It is going to be an evidence-based guide to the treatment of patellofemoral pain. So if you're working with athletes that having a little trouble running, this is a video for you. Check it out. If you guys want to check out the references, I do recommend reading through some of these articles. They were very helpful for me as a clinician. I'll leave a link to all of these in the show notes and you can check them out. And lastly, thank you so much for your support. You truly allow me to do what I love for a living. If you're watching this on YouTube, please hit that like button, comment, and subscribe to the channel. It helps me out tremendously. If you are listening or watching the podcast version of this, please leave me a positive rating and review. Again, it helps me out tremendously. If you want to go that extra step and support me further, consider subscribing to Fitness Pain-Free Insiders. It's a comprehensive educational resource and toolkit for the fitness and rehab professional Think Netflix, but for trainers and physical therapists, you have premium content from me, very similar to what you're watching right now, but more in depth. You get updated monthly webinars delivered via me. You have over a hundred webinars, eBooks, and complete guides at your disposal. You have access to a private Facebook group to have all your questions answered by me. You can decide upcoming podcast topics. And the best part is you can get started for just a dollar.
right? And lastly, you can cancel anytime. If you do cancel, I'll be a little sad, but that's okay. I'll leave a link in the show notes, but if you want to get started right now, head to fitnesspainfree.com, click on the programs link, and then click on Fitness Pain Free Insiders Online Library to get started.